And I want to talk about victory in Jesus. And I'd like for you to turn to 1 John 5, verse 4. Kind of a continuation of a few things that we have been talking about. First John 5, verse 4, and we'll not have you to stand. Normally do, we do when we read the Word of the Lord, but we just have so many scriptures here tonight that we will be going through. I'd like to read verse, <coughs> verse uh, 1 through 4. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that beget love loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory. Let's say the word victory together. Victory. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So, what he is talking about here, he's talking about two things that I feel that are very, very essential for you to understand. Now, he says that, I'll just ask you this question. He says that there is something that overcomes the world. What is it? And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. But now the way he writes it, even our faith, it, it leads you to believe that he also includes or associates the word love. Because the context of the scripture is love. Now, he talks about the commandments of God, and he talks about the, the brethren. He talks about acceptance into the body of Christ. Now, what I get out of this when I read it, he's talking about a, a person who loves his involvement and his commitment, and that he manifests faith in it. Now, there are certain things that you could love and for not perhaps not have faith in them. Uh, I have done counseling before with couples where one of, uh, of the party, uh, one of the couple, uh, one party of the couple had committed uh, a, a sin against the other one. And while there was a deep love, there was no real faith or no trust involved in their relationship. And so as a result... Uh, a credibility had to be reestablished. Now you've got to understand, you know, when things like this happens, God forgives. But uh, the Bible says, He that sin restores such a one. While God does forgive you, and the church forgives you, restoration is a painful and a slow thing. And yet it comes that way because you have to build up confidence or trust. But what the way... John is speaking of, of, he's speaking of the commandments of God. They're not grievous. And he's speaking of our love for those commandments. Now Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so what he's saying is that, uh, now here's the thing. We love these commandments. 
And at the same time, we also put our trust and our confidence in God and in His commandments. And the victory that overcometh the world is our faith that we manifest in that which we love. Now, you see, you can't say that you have perfect faith in God if, if, uh, if you don't really love God. And how do you know if you love God? It's predicated upon your willingness and your excitement relative to the commandments of God. There was a gentleman one uh, uh, afternoon sitting on the porch one late Saturday afternoon and he was reading his Bible thoroughly, searching from page to page and the, uh, the minister stopped and thought he would just chat with him a little bit and he walked up to him. The old gentleman hardly lifted up his eyes from the pages of the Bible. And so the minister said, Brother, what are you doing? He said, I'm just trying to find out if I love God. He said, what do you mean trying to find out if you love God? Well, you've been in the church all your life. And yes, but he said, you know, the, the thing about it is I never read the whole Bible. He said, you never read the whole Bible? He said, no. Well, he said, don't be too alarmed about that. The preacher said, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that haven't read the whole Bible. He said, that's the point of it, though. How do I know that I love the Bible or God if I haven't read the whole Bible? He, the minister said, well, wait a minute. Now, you can love God without reading the whole Bible. He said, well, it may be possible, but on the other hand, maybe I don't. He said, I ran across a scripture that says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, he said, if I haven't read all the commandments, then how do I know that I am keeping them? And so as a result, he said, I've got to read it all to find out if I'm keeping them. And after I read them, and then I find out that I'm in uh, concurrence with them, then, uh, then will I know that I love God. Then will I know that I love God. Now, this is quite a statement. Quite a statement. But a lot of people, they're praying and they're, they're trusting God, and they're saying, I want to believe God. I want to have faith in God. And at the same time, they don't pray like they ought to pray. They don't read their Bible the way they ought to read their Bible. And they don't seek after God the way they ought to seek after God. Now listen to me. You cannot have faith in God if you don't love God. How can you manifest trust and confidence in, in, in God if you do not possess the ability to love Him? See? And this is what he's saying. Now I'd like to just back up from 1 John. I'd like for you to turn to the book of Romans, and we just want to go through something that that I feel that, that, that is very, very important for us to consider. We'll go to Romans 6. Uh, Romans 6 explains the new birth. It explains the new birth. Now, if you read Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you will find out that the Apostle Paul, when he is addressing the Romans, in, 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 in chapter 1, he speaks of the reprobate, the man who sins away, as I spoke of last Sunday night. His time sears his conscience, in which he cannot hear God. Then he begins to talk about the Jews who were committed the oracles of God. And then he talks about the Gentiles, who also did by nature the things contained in the law. 
Now he says the, the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles was this, that the Jews were committed to the oracles of God, the Gentiles were not. Now the problem with the Jews, while they had the oracles of God, they didn't really love them. And they didn't understand the importance of them. So as a result, they just, uh, in a very slipshod, haphazard way, they, they, they worshiped God and they, they obeyed the commandments. But uh, when it wasn't too convenient, they didn't obey them. Now, he says the problem then between God and the Jews is this, that the Jews became worthy of death and damnation because they broke the commandments of God. Now, he said the Gentiles did not have the law of God. They, some of them had never even heard of the law of God, but they did by nature the things contained in the law. Now, by nature, he's simply saying they had a conscience and they followed their conscience. And you know, there are a lot of nations today that have an element of goodness incorporated in their law. I don't know that you could go to any land where they would say that it's all right to kill people. Most all nations, in fact, I would assume that all nations would have somewhere written in their law books that it is a criminal offense to take human life. Now, while they may not even know anything about the Bible, what, Paul says, gives them the authority of the right or what gives them the knowledge of what is right and what's wrong? He said they do by nature the things contained in the law. In other words, God made man in his own likeness, in his own image, and when he gave him a conscience, he put that inside of him to regulate him. And so the Gentiles, having not the law, did by nature the things contained in the law. Now he said the problem, though, with the Gentiles, the same problems the Jews had. While they knew in their own minds what was right and what was wrong, they didn't live like that. And they continued to broke the commandments of God. They broke the oracles of God. They seared their conscience. Now, he said the problem is this, that both the Jew and the Gentile become guilty before God. The Jews more so because they had the oracles of God, but nevertheless... They are all guilty before God. And so he says that every man stands guilty before God. And so there has been a pronunciation of death upon, upon the human race because the human race has broken the oracles of, God, oracles of God. They have not kept the commandments of the Lord. So he said the whole world stands guilty before God. Now that is the summary or the essence of of Romans 1 through Romans 5. Now I'm talking about chapters. So we got chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The essence of it is that all men are guilty. And the, and the commandment had been given to Adam and Eve in the garden, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. So there has been a curse pronounced upon the human race because of strict disobedience to God. Now, he goes on then to use this particular logic. Now he says, as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. 
That's the last verse of chapter 5. By Jesus Christ our Lord. Now what he does, he turns it around and starts talking then about how eternal life entered into the human race. How did he enter into the human race? He said through grace in Jesus Christ. Now, in chapter 6, he explains the new birth. The new birth. And so, he starts off by saying, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now what he does, he talks about a man who comes out of the world. John says, Love not the world, nor the things that are contained in the world. If a man loves the world, the love of God is not in him. And so there is death uh, pronounced upon the entire human race. Now Jesus came not to condemn the world. Why? The world was condemned already according to John 3, 17 and 18. So every man that was born under the bondage of sin, guilty of death because he broke the commandments of God, either the written commandments or the conscience that was given to him by nature, he broke that. And so he's guilty. Now, then he starts talking about eternal life. How then do we gain eternal life? The new birth is explained explicitly here in Romans 6. He said Jesus Christ died upon the cross. Now, he says, a death occurs in us when we repent of our sins. And then he says, the old man then is planted in the likeness of his death so that a new man might rise to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And he, he makes as good of explanation of the new birth experience that is repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and the infilling of the Holy Ghost in Romans 6 that I can find any place in the epistles. And this is what the apostles preached. Peter, who had the keys to the kingdom of God in Acts the second chapter, he preached, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The promise is unto you, to your children, to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so what he's saying here is that all men who were guilty must experience this new life that comes through Jesus Christ. Now, what happens when you read Romans 7, you don't get too much in the, in, in, in the way of encouragement uh, in Romans 7. Romans 7 is dealing with the, the man who has, who has been born again. He's a believer. But nevertheless, his life has all of these influences upon it. And so he begins to talk about uh, the believer, and he begins to talk about the influence. Now, what he does then, he talks about a husband and wife relationship. Now, the purpose of him talking about a husband and wife relationship here is to properly identify it in a spiritual sense to how that sin clings to man until such a time that death occurs. Now that's the sole purpose of him talking about a husband and wife relationship. A man is bound to his wife or a wife to the husband as long as they live. And this is exactly the reason why that he's speaking of this. Why? Because as long as you are alive in this world, death is going to reign over you. 
And that's what he's saying. And the only way that you can free yourself from sin is for a death to occur. A literal death to occur. Because sin's going to be with you as long as you're in this world. And the only way you'll get rid of that is for a death to occur. And so as a result, he's saying that we were in the flesh, but, but God has put us in the Spirit. Now, he goes on to explain, however, that we need to understand something. Verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And he begins to talk about the strife that he has in his life. Now, Jesus was man and Jesus was God. And when we're born again, we still have this robe of flesh, just like Jesus had. Do you believe that Jesus was tempted? Do you believe he was? Do you, do you believe that Jesus expressed uh, uh, times of sorrow and, and such? When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, do you think he wanted to go to the cross? No, he didn't want to go to the cross. He became obedient. He became willing. He submitted himself after he prayerfully considered the consequences. And then he prayed, Father, not my will but thine be done. He gave himself and the desires of his flesh over to the will of God. And you see, this is what Paul is explaining here. There is in us two natures. There is a sinful nature that uh, is associated with the robe of flesh. And then there is the spiritual nature that's associated with the man that's been born again. You may say, but I thought we were baptized in order to put the old man under. That's true, but remember this, that what has corrupted the outer man has certainly been buried in baptism. And this is where the conflict comes in. Well, I do believe that the new birth does allow us to put the flesh under and that the flesh can be submissive. All of us must remember that we are still under this particular law of sin. And that's what he's explaining. And what happens unless a death occurs in us, then that sinful nature rises up again. Now we're going to explain something here that I feel that, that you need to really understand. Now, you may say, but we put it under in baptism. But was baptism intended to be a one-shot deal that keeps the flesh under all time? Evidently not, because if that were true, then it would be impossible to backslide. Some people believe in uh, uh, eternal security. Now, I believe in eternal security at this point. As long as I trust in God, and as long as I submit myself to God, and as long as I keep my flesh under, then I am secure in the arms of God. But to believe in eternal security and take it out of context, that is, accepting no other scriptures than just a few, then uh, you might believe in that. But if you accept all the scriptures written in the Bible, you cannot believe in eternal security, unconditional eternal security. Now, so Romans 6 talks about this. And uh, notice how he puts it in verse 15. Not Romans 6, Romans 7. For that which I do, I allow not, and that which... I would, that do I not. But what I hate, 
That I do. Now, it almost sounds like this man's all confused and mixed up. Now, you see, what happens here is when he begins to talk about the law of sin and how it works in the flesh, I believe there is an element of confusion in it. In other words, he talks about, man, I get so double-minded. Now, you know what James said? A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Now, he he moves out of, of, of chapter 7 and he goes into chapter 8. Now, he's still talking about the same man. The very same identical man. The man who was born again in Romans 6. The man who had the conflict in Romans 7. Now notice what he says in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which were in Christ Jesus who walk not according, not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now what he's saying is there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. But he didn't stop there. He says who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And see, that's the condition right there. Now, if you read Romans 8, man, Romans 8 will just give you victory like nothing that you've ever read before. Romans 7 gets you all bogged down, and, and you get to feeling so bad about yourself, you wonder if you could ever do anything right. See? Now, what I want to do is just make a little comparison. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle Paul speaks to the, to, the, to the church at Corinth, and this is what he said. Okay. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and it all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. That rock was Christ. And with many of them God was not well pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be idolaters. As some of as were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down and to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit uh, fornication as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Now, if you will, if you remember, most of you are familiar with this. If you've been through Search for Truth, how many of you have been through Search for Truth, or you've taught it? Oh, look at the hands. Now, some of you who have not taught Search for Truth, and some of you have never been in it, uh, you, are, you know the Bible well enough to, to follow along with this. But if some of you have not gone through Search for Truth, or you have not been in the, involved in Bible teaching long, then I am explaining this in a very elementary way for your benefit. So to some of you, this is very elementary and very basic, but it, it's something that you need to understand. Now, when, when uh, Moses saw that the children of Israel uh, were in Egyptian bondage, now, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, you find all of the Israelites going into Egypt. And, uh, of course, Joseph there was responsible for the preservation of the Hebrew race. But... Israel was in Egyptian bondage for 435 years. 400 years 
uh, they were there excluding the life of Joseph. But if you include the life of Joseph, it was a total of 435 years. Now, when, when Moses rose up uh, to slay an Egyptian, and he did do that because his people were being smitten uh, very uh, drastically by the, the hand of the Egyptians, uh, Moses then was rejected of, of his household and of his brethren, and uh, uh, the Egyptians were after him also, so he fled into a wilderness, and there he stayed for 40 years. Now Moses came back, and uh, when Moses came back, he stood before Pharaoh, and this is when the ten plagues came upon the household of the Egyptians. Now, God was requesting to Pharaoh, let my people go. Now you see the same identical parallel in the chapters of Romans that are written. In fact, if you want to read the entire book of Romans and you study the history of the Egyptians, not the Egyptians, but the Israelites from the time in which they went into captivity, you find a very definite parallel throughout the book of Romans. Now that's what we want to follow here just for a moment. Now what happened was that they were in this particular bondage. Now Moses came back and Moses said, let my people go. And of course Pharaoh uh, said, no, we, we can't let them go. And he would not let them go. And you're familiar with the ten plagues that came upon the household of the Egyptians. And finally, Moses took the children of Israel out into the wilderness. Now the Bible says that Moses requested, let me take them three days journey into the wilderness. Now Pharaoh said, well, why three days? Now the reason why that he wanted to go three days because the entailed in that was the passing of the Red Sea. You see, they lived in the fertile lands of Goshen near the Red Sea to start with. And what they were going to have to do was pass on over the Red Sea. And Moses felt that if I can get them three days' journey into the wilderness, I'll be far away from Egypt, and the Red Sea will be closed back, and there will be, not be a chance nor for them to go back. And so as a result, uh, he, he pled with Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, well, you can take them out of ways, but and then you offer up sacrifice. And Moses insisted, no, it's going to be three days' journey into the wilderness. And so as a result... Uh, uh, all the plagues came upon the household of Israel, or Egypt, brother. Now, the last plague that came upon the household of Egypt was the plague of death. And so as a result, the death angel came and visited the household of the Egyptians. It was at that time that Israel marched out under Moses' leadership. Now, Moses was a prophet like unto Jesus Christ. Now, According to the Bible, according to the Bible, the oracles of God and the commandments of God that are not grievous, you see, that, uh, that uh, uh, really mean life and they mean strength and they mean, need power, mean power, those were given to Israel after Israel was baptized by Moses who was a prophet like unto Jesus Christ. Or Jesus Christ was a prophet like unto Moses. Now they passed through the Red Sea. They went three days journey in the wilderness. Now when they passed through the Red Sea, they were led by Moses through that sea. And so Paul is saying 
that that Red Sea was a type of baptism. Okay. And, of course, they were led by their deliverer, Moses. Moses was a giver of the Old Testament law. Now, after they passed through, then they experienced this cloud that came and rested over them in the daytime. And at night, there was a big pillar of fire in the heavens. And uh, some type of a big pillar up in the sky of fire. And, and they stayed under the cloud, and they stayed under the fire. Now, this was also a type of baptism. It's a type of spirit baptism. Uh, John says, I indeed baptize you with water, saying, There's one mightier than I coming after me, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, that's what we're baptized with today, the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now, when Moses passed through that Red Sea, the Red Sea uh, engulfed, went back together on all of the Egyptians. Now, the Egyptians that were swallowed there, according to the book of Psalms, when the Bible says the horse and the rider is cast in the sea, that, the Egyptian, that's a type of sin. That's a type of the old man. That's a, that's a type of the man of corruption. It's a type of the, the, the system uh, of corruption also. Now, when we're baptized in Jesus' name, the old man of sin is buried in the sea. He is lost in the sea. And you see, the Egyptians who were swallowed up, this was a type of the old man who was, who was buried in the sea, who lost his life in the sea, who was planted in the sea. And so when Moses marched out and offered up a sacrifice three days into the wilderness, he wanted them to get far enough away. And the three steps that you find in the Bible that deals with salvation is repentance, baptism in Jesus' name, and then filling of the gift of the Holy Ghost. Friend, that purposely is designed by God to take you out of a world of sin, to take you out of Egypt, to take you far enough into the kingdom of God that you can't see the world anymore, that you can't see Egypt anymore. Now, the problem, however, was that when they got in the wilderness, they began to give some thought to what they were doing. Now you see them in Romans 7. Now, the reason why I'm going through this, because we're going to parallel this with, with a Christian's life, and I talked somewhat about it, but tonight I want to go a little bit deeper into it. Now, when they were in the wilderness, they marched after they were given the Ten Commandments and such, they then marched up to a place called Kadesh Barnea. Now, the word Kadesh Barnea means a place of dedication or a place of consecration. They looked over into the Promised Land, and when they looked over into the Promised Land, the Bible tells us that that uh, they wanted to, they wanted to go over there, uh, and Moses wanted to go over there. God had promised them that land. But uh, something happened at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, twelve spies were chosen. And of those twelve spies that were sent out, only two of those men came back and said, We can go over and we can possess the land. Now, if you would turn with me to the book of, of uh, Numbers, the 13th chapter, you will find that uh, uh, Moses writes concerning this. And they came back and they give their testimony. In, in Numbers, the 13th chapter, 
they they came back and 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 they just began to uh, to talk about what had happened. Now in verse thirty three, the Bible says, and there they saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. Now notice what happened here. When the spies went out and they looked at the land. When they went out and they looked at the land that God told them that they could have. All of the spies with the exception of Joshua and Caleb came back and said. Oh now wait just a minute. We're supposed to go over there where all the giants are. Now, what happened to Joshua and Caleb? They came back, and the Bible says that they brought these big clusters of grapes. Did you know those grapes were so big that they had to put a stave or a stick between them and carry them on the shoulder? Now, they saw something in the promised land that the other ten did not see. Now the ten came back and says, we cannot possess the land. Now notice what the scripture says. The scripture says that they admitted we are as grasshoppers to them in our own eyes. Now then they turned around and said also in their eyes. Now the truth of the matter is, friend, they didn't talk to one living soul over there in that land. They did not have any idea as to how the sons of Anak really felt about them. Well, they didn't go over there and say, hey, let's eat a hot dog around the fire and talk about the difference between us. They did not do that, friend. They were creeping around there and and looking, and they saw these great, big, gigantic, robust men. And they came back, and they said, oh, no. Now, when Joshua and Caleb got back, do you know what those other spies were doing? They had all of the people of Israel down on their knees. And... And, and they were crying out. And they were praying. And you know what they were praying for? Give us a leader that will take us back into Egypt. We want to go back into Egypt. You mean you want to go back over there where you were beaten? You want to go back over there where you were smitten? You want to go back over there where you were slaves? Now that's what they were praying. And they said, but we can't go into the promised land because those people over there, why, they're giants in the land. And in our own eyes. Now listen, friend, they really didn't have any idea as to how the sons of Anak felt about them. Now they accused the sons of Anak of saying, in their eyes we're grasshoppers too. The truth of the matter, the hang-up was not in how the sons of Anak felt about them. The hang-up was in their own brain, right between their own two ears. And they made this confession, in our own eyes we're like grasshoppers. Let's go back. Now you see, Romans 7, here we are. Oh, we want to go into the promised land. But there are so many great promises over there and such. We want to go over there and we want to find, we want to live in, well, Joshua and Caleb came back, they were whistling Dixie and they had these big grapes and man, they were, and they came back and they saw all these men down and, and all Israel down praying. What's going on here? 
And so Moses in Christ said, Man, let's go get that land. There are walled cities over there, and there are vineyards over there, and there are orchards over there, and there are groves over there, and there's fertile ground over there. And men, all we have to do is cross the river Jordan. And God has said, It's ours. The others, however, they were down and said, No, we, we, let's go back. We, we want to go back. 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 Now, because that the majority ruled in this particular sense, God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to let you wander around in the wilderness until you get all of this business out of your system. And you know what he did? He sprinkled them with blessings while they were in the wilderness, but not like the blessings that he wanted to give them over in the promised land. And so the Bible says, with many of them God was not well pleased. 23,000 of them died in just one little thing. God fed them manna from heaven. He bestowed upon them great and wonderful things. But see, his, his desire was to take them right into the promised land. Lead them on into a land of victory. Now, the promised land is not heaven. See? Canaan's land is not heaven. Canaan's land is Romans 8. It's a life in the Spirit. Fulfillment of all of God's promises to man. Now, I want to just take for a moment a man... And I want to follow his life through, and we want to parallel this, okay? Now, we're talking about victory in Jesus, okay? Here comes a man. He is so sick and tired of the world. Oh, my, the world is so terrible and so sinful. And Well, he's been involved in everything from A to Z, you name it. He's been involved in it. And so he's, he's searching. He's looking. He's looking for a way out. He doesn't really know how to get out, but... But he's looking for a way out. And then all of a sudden, he, he comes in, uh, into a, a real Jesus name, apostolic, one God, Holy Ghost service. And all of a sudden, he realizes that Jesus does reign here. And he sees this new birth experience. This is his way out. And so God begins to draw him. God begins to pull him. And uh, listen, it's at this time... That if, if you want to be miserable, you just resist God, and you're going to find out the plagues of Egypt will come upon you for sure. See? That, that's what happens, see? And, and so a lot of times when people are contemplating, contemplating, should I live for God or should I not? And they just kind of mill around a little bit, making up their mind. You will find that something drastic will happen to them. See? Why? God's interested in your soul, friend. See? God's interested in, in you allowing the inner man to be set free. You see, we got this old Egyptian nature. But inside of us, there is a soul that's being corrupted. And it's crying out. It's in bondage. And, and so as a result, the, the Egyptian nature holds on. And there's a cry out inside of us. 
And all of a sudden, the ten plagues of Egypt fall upon us, so to speak. And my friend, they're not rosy when they come. And you will find this one thing out of a man who hasn't fully repented. He could be just as sweet as honey one moment, just as mean as the devil the next moment. And you will find that when you're praying for him, oh, uh, you know, almost anything can happen. What's God doing? He's trying to get that man to understand that he needs God. He needs salvation. He needs to be set free. And then all of a sudden the man realizes he submits. And when he submits then, you see the death angel passes over. That's repentance. And then he marches through the Red Sea where the Egyptian nature is lost. And then he comes into this wilderness. I spoke to you about a month ago about the wilderness. And here he is. Now this is the crucial test in Christianity. And many of you are still in the wilderness. Now the wilderness won't have to last very long. It lasts longer for some than for others. But it doesn't have to last very long. You see, what happens in the wilderness, one day you're worshiping the golden calf and the next day you're eating manna from heaven. One day you're saying, oh, let's go to the promised land. The next day you're saying, I think I want to go back to Egypt. See? See? Now, God's going to let you wander around in that state of confusion until such a time that you work out your own salvation. You see, Paul speaks of this in Philippians, the second chapter, verse 12. He said, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I give a simple Bible study on this. In our stewardship classes, work out your own salvation. You know, I, I personally believe that there is total victory in the Lord. Total victory in the Lord. But what happens, some people, they just kind of march around the cross until, until they develop a, a salvation syndrome. And they become a little selfish. After a while, you know, they, 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 just, they, they become so selfish that that they feel the church owes them this, and the church owes them that, and the church owes them this, and the church... And after a while, they get the feeling, well, don't ask me to do anything. Don't ask, why, why are you calling on me all? Why are you picking on me all the time? See? Now, the truth of the matter is, you marched down to Kadesh a lot faster than what you thought, and when you got down there, then there was fear that came upon you. Because, you see, the crossing of the Jordan denotes total commitment to Christ. It denotes a death that takes place after the death at the altar. And this is where a lot of people fail the crucial test. To go on into the promised land where you can have victory over the giants and experience the great blessings of God is a fearful thing to a lot of people. It's a fearful thing. And so what happens when you're at Kadesh, the place of consecration, a lot of people, now they may not subconsciously rise up and say, oh, I, I just don't want to experience that kind of victory. You know what they do? They just, they, they, don't, they don't go back to Egypt. But they just wander around in the wilderness. Some of them even die there. I mean, they experience a, a real spiritual death. God just allows your spiritual bones to be bleached. 
by satanic powers and forces. Why? Because you're not really accepting what is from God. My Bible study, work out your own salvation. Oh, this is a this is a crucial thing. I tell people, it doesn't make any difference what problem you have. If it's a marital problem, if it's a financial problem, if it's a health problem, if it's a problem with a brother or a sister, if it's, it doesn't make any difference. If you learn the right things, you can have victory in the Lord. Now, all of my counseling, all of it's very, very simple. Now, you see, God did not call me to be a psychiatrist. And so I don't spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out why people do this and why people do that, why people do this and why. Did you know what? I don't think that there is a psychiatrist in the world that can figure out human nature. And this is the reason why, that their information varies so much from doctor to doctor and from counselor to counselor. The Bible says that the heart above all is deceptionally wicked who can know it. That simply means that you can't figure out why a man does what he does in every case. And so, being that this is true, and I believe it, then the best thing to do when you have a problem is don't just wander around out there and try to figure all this thing out and, 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 and bring about uh, a curse of God upon you. What you do is you run back to Kadesh, and here you submit yourself to God. You submit yourself to God. Now, Lord, here I am. I'm having this financial problem. Now, what is the deal, God? I submit myself. You commit yourself to God. Then I tell people that if you haven't talked to a spiritual leader, such as a minister or the pastor, we got several ministers here, pastor or an elder in the church, or a brother or sister that you really trust and, 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 and one that has been a spiritual father or mother to you, uh, then go talk to them. They're going to give you some direction. And I will say this to all the ministers and all the, the uh, uh, spiritual fathers and mothers that we have here. I think what you need to do is point them in the Scripture. If they're having a financial problem, you need to read in the Scripture and find out what will appropriate a blessing. And so you begin to look in the Scripture and you dig out all those Scriptures related to the problem that you have. Now you may say, but uh, that's easy, Brother Grant. Well, no, it's not that easy. Because some people don't know the direction to take in the Word of God. And, and of course, uh, uh, if, if you're sick in body and you have an affliction and you can't get over it, then go into the Scripture and look in the Scripture and see what the Scripture says. And so you compile all the evidences of the Scripture. Take a notebook and write them down. And then after that, what do you do? Then you memorize key scriptures that apply to your particular situation. And every day you quote that scripture. You quote it. Read in the scriptures that you have memorized. Somebody asked me, he said, Brother Grant, but what if I don't do it? If that won't do it, friend, there's no help for you. You mean none at all? Listen. When Jesus was in trouble, where did he go? To the Scripture. To the Scripture. We're working out our own salvation. We're in the wilderness. There's evil coming our way. 
Now, the last time I gave this Bible study, this young lady is not in this assembly tonight. But I would like to tell you that there was a young lady of our assembly that ran up to me afterwards over and said, Brother Grant, i got some horrible feelings against my dad. And you gave this Bible study. Now, what am I supposed to do about these feelings toward my dad? I said, I want you to look in the Bible. And she told me a few things about her dad and why she had these horrible feelings. I want you to look in the Bible. And I want you to read what a daughter and a father's relationship ought to be. And so she compiled a whole notebook full of, uh, of advice that came right out of the Scripture. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. I think she had 60 or 70 Scriptures. And then, then I, I pointed out certain ones. Memorize this one. Memorize this one. Memorize this one. Memorize this one. And so she memorized those Scriptures. Now comes the hard part, committing them and so you know what she did? She went to the candy store and bought some candy and went to the flower shop and bought some flowers and bought a card and she ran into where her father was and she said, Dad, for years I've had bad feelings against you. And she said, well, I'm not trying to make up with all these. I just want you to know that I love you. You know what she did? She ran up to me a Sunday night right after that. And she said, Brother Grant, it's all gone. I don't have any hatred or bitterness toward my father anymore. She said, now, where did the help come from the Scripture? You may say, well, I thought pastors were supposed to be more than that. Listen, friend, pastors are not to make disciples of people to themselves, but to Jesus. And I trust and pray that if the time ever comes, I say if. Because I'm not certainly not contemplating. But if the time ever comes in which God would call me from this assembly and place me some other place, that there would not be one soul in this building that would leave as a result of Pastor Grant leaving. Because I believe the church is greater than any one man if it's built upon the right foundation. Praise God. But see, you've got to work out your own salvation. It's in the wilderness that the troubles come. It's in the wilderness that temptation comes. It's in the wilderness that sorrow comes. But if you will learn to depend upon the Scripture, the Scripture, the Scripture going back, going back, going back, just five easy steps, commit your problem to God. Commit it to some spiritual leader for some advice and help. Learn the Scriptures or write them down and then memorize them and then commit them to action. You know, the problem with a lot of people, they know a lot more than they're willing to do. And if you know more than you're willing to do, friend, I don't have any advice for you. It's just that simple. You may say, oh, Brother Grant, but listen, I am very sincere when I say this. I believe that, that what I have outlined as working out your own salvation, I don't care what it is. Do you know that one sister came up to me the very next day after I gave her this Bible study, and this is what she said. You know those migraine headaches I've been having for years? She said, I have one every morning. when I, I don't have one now. And did you know what she told me not long ago? I have not had one since. Now, how did she get over those migraine headaches? Just reading in the Scripture. He was wounded for my transgression. He was bruised for my iniquity. And by His stripes, I am healed. And every time I feel a pain coming right up here, I am reminded that Jesus was bruised for me. And I put my confidence and I put my trust in my Redeemer. And the pain leaves. 
Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. And so, you know what happens? We wander in the wilderness. How long am I going to be in the wilderness? Some people say, until you cross over Jordan. And you won't get over Jordan, friend, without passing through the swelling of the waters again. While it's not a baptismal tank anymore or a Red Sea, Jordan is a symbol of death. And you will find that what happens here, Romans 5, Romans 6 then, and then Romans 7, and then you go into Romans 8, and you will find that the individual he's talking about in Romans 8 is the individual who heard the voice of his sinful nature, and yet at the same time he said, No, my flesh will not reign over that inner voice that speaks to me. I'll walk in the Spirit. And here is where so many, many Christians fail God. I was reading to you Romans, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. I'd like to just make a little reference to that before we go back to Romans 8. 1 Corinthians 10. You will say, you will notice moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were in the cloud and all passed through the sea. But if you will notice one thing, just back up to 1 Corinthians 9. Now when the Bible was canonized and scriptures were labeled and such, we came up with verses and chapters. However, before when it was originally written, they were not labeled as they're labeled today. So we're not really for sure where chapter 10 would even start. It was all one letter. And notice the context of it. Verse 25 of chapter 9. And every man that striveth for the master is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Now what is he saying, one that beateth the air? Have you ever noticed a boxer out in the ring and all he can do is just throw punches? He never lands one. But he's dancing around and he's throwing punches and he's boxing. It looks like he's winning the fight. But Paul says there can't be a knockdown until you carefully place your blow. You can't just beat the air and win the race. Or the fight, rather, in this case. He said you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't do that. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. In other words, you know what you're after. And you're not afraid. Oh, listen. I believe that every Christian that's afraid to fight trouble and afraid to fight sorrow and afraid to fight the devil, he might as well go back to Egypt. Because he's going to wander out in the wilderness until God bleaches his bones and he'll never go into the promised land. But how do I get to the promised land? You cannot be afraid of the giants. You've got to manifest faith in God that took you out. Paul says, I am persuaded he that has begun a work in me is able to finish that work. Now notice what he says. Here is the secret to winning the race. Here's the secret to lending the blows. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. And what he's saying is, listen, Kadesh Barnea is a real live place to me. 
Praise God. I found it, a place of consecration. I bent my knees. I looked over into the promised land. But I knew between me and the promised land was the swelling of Jordan. And I knew I had to pass through that sea or that river. And that river meant death for me. And I couldn't get over there. But oh, I saw something over there I wanted. I saw something over there that God had promised me. Now I have an alternative. I can wander in the wilderness. And I can be confused and mixed up all my life. Or I can bend my knees at Kadesh and close my eyes and I can see myself living in one of those homes over there. I can see myself planting my vineyard. I can also see a vineyard I didn't plant. I can see the promised land over there. I won't be afraid of the giants and I won't be afraid of this place of Jordan. And so at Kadesh, I die again. That's what he's saying. Do you know what's wrong with too many Christians? They experience death at the altar. And that was the finality of it. It was not meant to be that way, friend. Jordan is death. But you see, the promises of God are beyond Jordan. See, that's what he's saying. Romans 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, Egyptians. Romans 6, Israel came out. Romans 7, wilderness. You want to stay in this confused state all your life? No, you've got to work out your own salvation. You've got to experience some victories. You've got to know what you're after. And Romans 8 is the crossing over into the promised land. But you won't get over there without commitment. And Paul says, I die daily. Did they take Paul and kill him every day? No. How did he die daily? Oh, God. Lord, you see, my life, Lord, is not dependent upon anything that I do. But it's all in you. My talents are not big enough. They're not great enough. One of these days, I will have to stand before God. And one of these days, you will have to stand before God. And I wonder what it's going to be if the Master were to look at you and say, what do you think brought you here? And you'll say, Lord, I'm here because I won 14 souls in the city of Madison. No, you can't say that. You say, I'm here, Lord, because you led me here. But the Lord will say, but what about the time on a Saturday when you went out and worked in the Christian school? You'll have to say, God, that doesn't really count. It was you, Lord. But what about the time when you preached all the rest home services? You'll have to say, but Lord, that doesn't really count. It's by your grace, God. But what about all of the things that you've done? All you can say is, Lord, it's only a symbol of my love for you. 
I did it not to make heaven my home, but because I loved you. Let's lift our hands and praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Oh, hallelujah. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How can I get rid of the guilt and the condemnation, Pastor Grant? You got to cross Jordan at Kadesh. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ that made me free. How can I feel constant freedom in Jesus? You've got to go through the wilderness, friend, in Romans 7. And you've got to cross Jordan and Kadesh. There's got to be commitment. Praise God. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Give me that peace, Brother Grant. How can I find it in God? You've got to cross Jordan, friend. You've got to cross it. You've got to cross it. So then they which are in the flesh, Romans 7, cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Praise God. You may say, Brother Grant, it seems like all of my Christian experience has been heartache and trouble and trial. And you know, that's the truth for a lot of people. How can I escape this? You've got to find your way to Kadesh and you've got to cross Jordan. I want to go back to Romans 10. <laughs> Not Romans 10, pardon me, 1 Corinthians 10. I'm going to be finishing here in just a second. <clears throat> you see all of the problems that happen. Verse 11 says, of Romans 10. Now all these ha- happened unto them for in samples that they are written for our admonition upon whom the whole upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Notice this now. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that ye may be able to bear it. So can't you see the Israelites are all out in the wilderness. How are we going to get rid of all the plagues of the wilderness? How are we going to get rid of this dry place? How are we going to get rid of all this sorrow? The way of escape was through Jordan into the promised land. 
And you see, that's the same thing that happens to you. When trouble and trial keeps coming and 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 keeps coming. And you get sick of it. You gotta make up your mind. I'm either gonna get out of this or I'm gonna die right here in the middle of it. How are you gonna do it? The only way out, friend, is across Jordan. That was the only way for Israel. And that's the way of escape. That's what he's saying. So, you're sick of troubles. I'm not trying to tell you that they didn't have troubles in the promised land. I'm not trying to say that. But it was a different dimension. You've got to admit that. It was a different dimension. And the only way out is commitment to God. Lord, here I am. I'm ready to pass over. I'm ready to experience the second death now. What did Paul say in Romans 12? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye do what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's not in a baptismal tank anymore. But it's on an old-fashioned altar of commitment, a sacrifice. Why? So that you're not conformed to this world, but, but that you're transformed. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Could I point out something? The will of God is always good. That's what he says. You know why some of you don't live in the will of God? You're afraid of the giants of Anak. You're scared to death. There are men right here in this congregation that's scared to commit themselves to God. You're afraid you're going to be a preacher to Hong Kong, China. You're a chicken. Now, if I sound nasty and tough right now, it's because I intend to. That's what the devil wants. Amen. I say, that's what the devil wants. In your own eyes, you're saying when you admit that, I'm not a match for such a task. In our own eyes, we're like grasshoppers. I can't do that. The will of God's always good. If God calls you to do it, you'll be tickled to death doing it. You won't be happy doing anything but what God calls you to do. The only way to have peace and joy is just to say, Lord, here I am. You send me wherever you want to send me. You talk to me about preaching whatever you want me to preach. You just do whatever you want to do with me, God. But here I am, Lord. I surrender all. And God's going to say, okay, Jordan River, flow out and let this man pass over. <laughs> Praise God. 
And this is the victory that overcomes the world. Even our faith. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> My children, I have stated in my word that I would go with you always, even to the end of the world. Now, you are my child. I have called you with my name. I have placed my name in your forehead. If you are equipped with what I have given you, there is nothing that shall come your way that shall destroy you. I have also declared by my holy ones of old that I would put my word in your inward parts. And so hidden down deep inside of your heart is a message of salvation to a lost world. The world cannot see it because it's hidden from them. But then it shall flow out of you like a sharp two-edged sword. And before men will even realize what is happening, the word of God has already conquered. I said, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. For I have put my own spirit in you, and I promise to follow along with you, and to walk with you, and go before you, and stand by your side. Now what is there to trouble you? What is there to rob you of victory? When I am the great victor, let me ask you this question, my child. Do you believe, do you really believe, that righteousness will prevail. Do you really believe that I will be the winner? And you say yes to both of these questions. Then I say to you, then why do you reluctantly follow me? Then I ask you this question. Do you believe that Satan is the eternally defeated foe? And you quickly answer yes. Then I say to you, why do you then follow after the ways of the world? Oh, God, hallelujah. I believe that God is speaking to so many of us tonight. Do you believe that He's talking to your heart right now? Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
all over the building, people are kneeling and praying. Oh, God. Hallelujah. Would you kneel and pray and call upon His name? Would you seek His face? He's a wonderful Savior that would deliver you and keep you.